just a reminder. We encourage you, and in light of Philippians 2, uh, how Christ emptied himself for us, that at Christmas we, we just demonstrate the generosity and the heart of God by, by supporting things like Emmanuel's Child, the Shoebox Campaign. We also were asked to participate in a program locally where uh, gifts are provided for children whose parents are incarcerated. And uh, so just so you know, that's coming up. That'll be maybe a local opportunity that we can participate in. We're like, hey, would you, uh, a lady asked me, would you, you're in your church, we want to give gifts to kids whose parents are in, um, in the penal system uh, and that maybe won't get gifts. Which, you know, would you be willing to help? And they give us names and ages and, and, or ages and, and genders, and then we could go and get gifts for those kids. So anyway, we kind of go from out to in. So we go furthest abroad with the stars and the shoeboxes, and then we kind of look at some local opportunities. And Christmas is your opportunity to demonstrate um, God's love and the joy of Christmas by giving. And so that's the whole heart of Christmas as a gift. And that's one way we do this with Emmanuel's Child, $35. You keep the one half and, and just a great way to partner with our brothers and sisters in Eastern Europe. So, Well, it's hunting season. And, of course, if you're a hunter, you know one of the primary rules before you shoot anything is that you identify the target, right? You know what you're shooting at. Now, I, I've, I'm, not a, I'm not a voracious hunter by any means, but I've talked to, I've got a lot of friends that are hunters, and, and, and in certain places you go to, sometimes it sounds like you're in a war zone, right? Like, people are just shooting, and like, there can't be that many deer, but every time something moves, and I remember one guy in, in the southern Alberta there, he was in one of the forest districts, which is kind of a public hunting land, and, and he just said, yeah, like, it was, it was frightening, because there just was boom, 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 you know, and then, and then, and then you know, he's, he's looking, and he notices this guy is, is actually looking at him through his scope, and which you're not supposed to do, right? So, so you want to make sure you hit the right target. And for Paul, and for the Bible, and, and for the gospel, the right target is just knowing your position in Jesus Christ. That you just know where you, where you, what you have. And that when you have that knowledge and you have that target, it brings this great joy to your life, right? And that's even the gospel, in the, in the gospels, you'll, you'll see that, right? Christ is born and what happens? Joy, 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 joy. Simeon's in the, in the temple, joy. Anna in the temple, joy. The shepherds in the field, joy, right? Everywhere Jesus is encountered, there's joy. And that's why in the beginning of chapter 3 of the book of Philippians, he writes to this church and he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Remember where you stand. Remember who you know. Remember what you got. Keep that in mind because this is really important. Know the target. Know what you're looking at, where you're shooting, where you're aiming. It's really important. Rejoice in the Lord. And I've said this before, he says, but I'm going to say this again. To write this again is no trouble for me. It is a safeguard for you. It will bring you spiritual stability. Now, Paul is sitting in Rome. He's writing to this church in Philippi. It's, it's a long journey away. There, are, there is stuff going on out there that he has no control over. But as he writes this letter, he's legitimately concerned that the Philippians may take their eyes off the right target and put it on the wrong target. That can happen to you and me. You think you're looking at the right thing. 
you think you're going in the right direction, then you realize, I'm not going in the right direction. I've been looking the wrong place. And so then he gives this warning. He says, rejoice in the Lord. It's a spiritual stability for you. It's a good thing. And then all of a sudden, the, the whole tone changes in verse 2. And he says, starts off, beware of the dogs. You're like, whoa, <laughs> the dogs, you know, watch out for the dogs. Maybe as you read that, you're thinking of something like this first picture here. You know, like, beware of the dog. You know? Watch out for that, you know, dog, that sleeping dog. Or maybe as a picture more like this next one here. Uh, you know, whoo, aren't you afraid now, right? Shivering in your, in your, oh, the dog, oh no, you know, or, or but really, he's, he means something more like this. This is a legitimate threat. The dog in the first century wouldn't have been probably as well groomed as this. It would have been mangy. You know, kind of an inbred cur that sort of ran through the streets and, and ate the garbage and other stuff that was lying in, in the streets. I mean, th this was not a friendly thing. This wasn't fluffy. Uh, you didn't spend thousands on the veterinarian in the first century on your dog, right? Your do you know, if you had a dog, it was tied up and you didn't do anything. You know, it was just sort of, it was functional. But, but this is a, a serious threat. He's like, beware of the dog. What dogs? Well, he'll get there in a moment. But he's drawing attention to something really significant here. And he says in the end of verse 2, he says, Beware of the evil workers. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh. He's going somewhere here. There are these Jewish people in the first century that followed Christians around, that tried to, to really push the whole agenda of Judaism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Christ, Christ is good, but you still need Judaism. You still need these laws. You still need to do these things. And he, Paul says, he's identifying. He's like, rejoice in the Lord, but, but by the way, beware of the dogs, the evil workers, and the mutilators. He takes a word the word that the Jews would use for circumcision, which was the outward sign of that they were belonging to the covenant. Uh, and, and, he, and he uses a different word. He inserts this. Instead of, you know, cutting around, that word mutilates. It's, it's like chopping up, dicing. Like he's, he's insulting them. Your dogs, your evil workers, your mutilators. He's throwing the gauntlet down here. He's saying in no uncertain terms how he really feels about these people. They are not our friends. They are bringing in foreign ideas to the gospel that you have in Jesus Christ. They're dogs, evil workers, they're mutilators. Don't listen to those people. Anytime anyone adds to the gospel, they're dangerous. They're like that dog that may be carrying rabies, right? You don't go pet that thing. You, you know, you, you know, you shoo it away, you throw rocks at it, whatever. You, you don't want that thing near you or your children. It's, it's, you're careful about that, right? They're evil workers. The Jews pride themselves on being on men and women of good works, doing the works of God. But he's like, no, no, they're evil workers, and they're mutilators. They're horrible, horrible people to have around. Beware of them. And he reminds them in verse 3 who they are. He says, you know, we are the circumcision. That means, that means we are the, the, the recipients of God's covenant. Not, not, not the Jews, not, not these Jewish kind of 
teachers who, who syncretize Christianity with Judaism. No, no we, are, we are the circumcision. And he's speaking of, of him and them, even though these are Gentiles. He's talking to a Roman jailer, uh, a, a girl that was demon-possessed, this Thyatiran Asian woman. He's like, yeah, you, you guys, you're, you're part of God's covenant people because you worship by the Spirit of God. And you exult in Christ Jesus. And you do not rely on human credentials who put no reliance on the flesh is the literal translation, but it's, a, it's about human credentials, right? You know, we, don't, we didn't get to know Jesus Christ on our human credentials. Salvation is a gift of God. Now, some, sometimes, like, you know, we think, well, my family did this for me as a baby, and therefore I have spiritual credentials. There's nothing in the Scripture that says that. The Jews thought that. I mean, circumcision was that sign where you identified as the covenant people of God. But even in the Old Testament, he's like, God's like, this is an issue of the heart. It's not this surgery that's important. It's the heart that matters. And you are the true followers of God in the heart. You worship in the spirit. You, you, you boast in, in Jesus Christ. And, and you don't rely on your human credentials. But in case... You want to wonder who has credentials. Let me tell you about my credentials, says Paul. Now, you understand, this is Philippi. This is a Roman colony. This is the Roman society, which was all about getting a step ahead, elevating your status, having honor and privilege. And this was all about, the Romans were all about this, right? If, if you had money, you, you would sponsor an event. Your name would get put on that event. We do this today, right? You know? Who sponsors NHL, you know, Hockey Night in Canada, right? Back in the day, it was, you know, some cigarette company, then it was some beer company. I mean, I mean, we want our name attached to certain things that elevates our status. That was the whole Roman idea. But the Bible here says, you know, we don't bring our resume or our LinkedIn profile or all our certifications into the table and says, yeah, here we are. We've got status now. He's like, we don't rely on our human credentials. But in case... You want to know what my credentials are compared to those guys that might come into your church and attempt to, to, to woo you with, with who they are. Let me tell you who I am. And in verse 4, um, Paul begins to give us his background. He will use his personal testimony here to help remind us what it means to be in He's like, I had every advantage, everything going for me. But that all changed when I met Jesus. But first of all, he starts, he's like, mine too are significant. I mean, if anyone thinks he has good reasons to put confidence in human credentials, I have more. I mean, anyone that could come to you cannot compare with what I had. Let me tell you what I had. Verse 5, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day from the people of Israel. I mean, I, I, I was born into this devout Jewish home. My family came from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, this is important for Jews because there was a period of time where a bunch of Jews were deported by the Assyrians. They were sprinkled into all the nations, and basically what happened is they lost the genealogies. But there, there were these two tribes down south that weren't in that deportation. Later on, those ones got, got exiled to Babylon as a group and brought back as a group. And so they were able to retain their genealogies. Of those groups, there were two tribes, Benjamin and Judah and the Levites. 
But all the other tribes, it was kind of sketchy. Well, I'm, I'm from the tribe of Simeon. Well, can you prove it? Well, not really. My family went here, you know, and, and they, they, they intermarried, and, and then they lost the purity of the Jew. But he's like, no, I, I'm from one of the purest tribes available. In fact, the first king came from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. We kept all the traditions and laws of the Jewish I learned the Hebrew language. I could read from the Torah and, and, and recite the Torah. My parents sent me to Hebrew school and so that I would be deeply entrenched in the truth of who I am and what we believed. And as I lived according to the law as a Pharisee, I mean, the Pharisees were this strict sect of, of Jews who, who really looked hard to study the law, and, and they had extra kind of regular, you know, they, they, they would interpret it and say, well, the, this law says this, and so that means this, and we're going to do this and this and this. And they, they were precise about how they were going to obey the word of God. They were the most literal interpreters of God's law, and they lived it out, jot by jot, letter by letter, sentence by sentence. I was a faithful follower of He goes on in, in verse 6. He says, in my zeal for God, I persecute the church. I mean, others, you know, they're, they're doing all, you know, memorizing the verses, going to the synagogue, blah, blah, blah. But I, I took it to the end extreme. I mean, I was going to stop anything that threatened Judaism. They're stoning Stephen, and I'm standing there holding their coats while they're killing a Christian. Why? Because I really felt like I was doing the right thing. According to the righteousness stipulated in the law, I was blameless. And basically, all those outward rules I kept. You couldn't say, oh yeah, Paul, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's messing up. No, no. As it, you could look on the outside, there was no sin that you could identify in my life from the outward perspective. I was blameless. If the, if the law and, and, and the Midrash said, you know, don't walk 500 steps on the Sabbath, I didn't walk 500 steps on the Sabbath. I didn't touch dead people. I was careful to observe all the ceremonial stipulations of the law. No one could find fault with me. I mean, he was a good guy. He would have been a good neighbor to have. He'd be the guy you want working in your work crew because he, he kept the rules and followed the regulations and did the right thing. And, you know, I mean, he had all these things going for him. And then in verse 7, he turns the table. He said, all that stuff I had going for me, all these assets, I've come to regard as liabilities because of Christ. And this is the challenge. Because you spend your whole life aiming at a certain thing. And then all of a sudden you meet Jesus and you realize this whole direction I've been going has been wrong. And every, everything that I gained on this pathway, I have to reverse in order to follow Jesus. He's like, all the assets, and I got a picture here, you know, I mean, you, you understand assets and liabilities, right? I mean, you, you know, here, here's the benefits, here's the, you know, here, here's the things, you know, the write-offs, you know, and he's like, whatever was on this side, I'm now, I'm moving it to the other side. 
everything I did to get to climb up the ladder, suddenly I'm, I've fallen down back to the bottom of the ladder. I'm starting all over again. I mean, you guys understand liabilities. Sometimes you just got to write something off. You, you tried, you tried, you tried. This thing ain't working. Okay, we're just going to write it off. We're just going to move on. We're, gonna, we're just going to bury that and start over again and, and, and move forward. It's like all of this that was really good for me is now a liability because of Jesus Christ. And then he expands on that in verse 8. He says more than that. I now regard all things as liabilities compared to the far greater knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And this sentence will go on and on. But it's like everything. I fall into the bottom of the ladder now as I'm looking at my life. I just realize, whoo, I thought that was an asset. I thought that was an asset. Those aren't assets. They're liabilities. I need to know Christ. The far greater value of knowing Christ, Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. It's a complete write-off. And I'm starting again at the bottom. But now what I have is so deeply richer than what I had before. And I have a relationship now. I had a religion before. But now I have a relationship. And a relational companionship can carry you much further than religion can. Religion is this cold, sterile, you know, adherence to rules and regulations. But relationship, ooh, that, that's dynamic. It's talking and listening and, 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 and walking and comforting and, 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 you know, someone putting their arm around you. I mean, this is different. The far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things. Indeed, he says, indeed, I regard them as dung that I may gain Christ. And as he builds this argument, he gets, comes to that point of, of dung. And uh, skabalos is the Greek word. And, I mean, this is, it's almost like Paul is swearing in, in this. He, he picks the most crudest, rudest, vilest term that, that he could put into the Holy Scriptures and says, that's what it's like now, guys. It's the compost pile. Right? It's, I got a picture here. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's the trash heap, right? <laughs> This is like a total, you know, retro uh, <laughs> Fraggle Rock. Anyway, there you go. You have to Google that later. But, you know, I'm throwing on the trash heap. All those things that I thought was getting me ahead in life, where I was focusing and aiming and climbing, I've fallen down the ladder. I'm just throwing it over there in order that I may gain Christ. Bidag is a lexicon of the Greek language. And basically, he's like, you know, Paul wanted to get across the crudity of the Greek language. And basically, he said, it's all crap. That's how he says it, right? It's all crap. So we'll go back to the text if we could. 2 verse uh, 8 there. I regard them as dumb. You know, I have a bucket outside my door. All the scraps go into that bucket, right? Potato peels. Uh, if there's something that's been in the fridge too long, you know, and it's starting to sing and walk around when I open the door, it goes in there. Right? 
and then I take it out to the chickens, and, and they, chickens are great recyclers of anything. They could just eat it, and somehow it doesn't affect them, or, you know, it's good, you know. But, but basically, Paul's like, I've thrown it into the scrapbook. The carcasses, you know, that, that you know, are, are, are in, in the garbage dumps of the city, and the dogs are roaming around. That's where all my credentials have gone. I throw them Because I want to gain Christ. And he says in verse 9, and be found in him. I mean, I have a new position in Jesus. And that position is, is this righteous position. Not because I have my own righteousness derived from the law, but because I have the righteousness that comes by way of Christ's faithfulness. A righteousness from God that is in fact based on Christ's faithfulness. Or you could translate that faith in Christ, depending how you want <clears throat> to translate the, the genitive there. I mean, but, but the idea is the same, actually. I mean, it, it is, we put our faith in Christ in order to be declared righteous, but we all, it is also Christ's faithfulness. His, his willingness to, to die on the cross and, and fulfill the plan of God by which we have received this gift of righteousness. Paul was a righteous man, clean, living, good person. But he wasn't in relationship with God. It's the scariest thing. Your coworkers, your families, friends, they'll be like, I'm a good person. I go to church. I believe in God. But they're still not righteous. You could even believe that Jesus you know, did something on the cross, and he rose again, but, but you need to have faith in Jesus Christ and the promise of eternal life. And Martin Luther fought for this, as Pastor Elijah said. I mean, 500 plus years ago, he's like, look, the just shall live by faith. A righteousness is possible to achieve, but not on anything that we've done. And Christ has made it possible on the cross for us to be declared righteous. And Paul's like, I was working so hard to become righteous, and then I fell to the bottom of the ladder, and I realized I could do nothing, but Christ provided it for me. By faith, I receive, and I am declared righteous by the Father because I believe in his Son and the promise that he has for eternal life. And some people say it's not that simple. I have to do something. And if you hear that message, understand they are now veering away from the gospel path. They have taken their aim off of Christ and they're looking at something else. Because this, as Paul says very clearly, is not based on anything that I have done. Nor do I have to keep doing things in order to maintain this righteousness. Why? Because it's not my righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness given to me. The, the, the theological term is imputed. Like it, it, It's his righteousness placed upon me. God looks at me. He doesn't see my sinful horrid condition. He sees because of my faith in Jesus Christ and his promise for eternal life, he sees the righteousness of Christ. The judge sits in heaven and when you believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life, the gavel hits the thing. And he says, not guilty. The father doesn't stand in heaven and hold the gavel and say, okay, you believe in Jesus Christ. I'm holding the gavel to see how you live your life. And if you make it to the end by holding on to this thing, then I'll let you know that you're righteous. Wouldn't that be awful? Can you imagine growing up with a parent like that? 
Okay, I'll tell you you're a good kid. Once you graduate and you've never done anything bad, then I'll let you know you're a good kid. The father says, not guilty. Forgiven. Adopted. Redeemed. Completed actions. And you're like, what about Christians that keep sinning and doing stuff? Yeah, God has rebellious children. God has children that make, make mistakes and do stupid things, but that doesn't change the fact that when he declares you not righteous and, and, or righteous and, and not guilty, when he gives you the righteousness of Christ, it is done. Paul's like, this is what I'm, I'm clinging to. I'm not guilty. Not because I've done anything or earned anything or got anywhere. It's because Christ did it for me and I trust in him. This is grace, people. No, but I got to do something. I have to add a quality to my faith in order to maintain this. No, no, no. You enter a relationship with God at that point. And there's incredible possibility if you choose to move with it. But you have now a position in Christ based on what Christ has done this righteousness that doesn't come from the law, but it comes from Christ's faithfulness, his completed work for you on the cross. And he says, based on the fact that I have this new standing with God because of Christ's faithfulness, because of my faith in Christ, he says, now I have this aim. In verse 10, I've got this desire. My aim is to know him. Before, his aim was to move up in his status as a good Jew to do the right things, to, to prove his righteousness. Now he's like, my aim now is a relational aim. I really want to know him. Why? Because why wouldn't you want to get to know the person that put his life on the line so that you can have life? The grace of God draws us to the love of God and to the person of Jesus Christ and, and to say, yeah, he did all that for me. Of course I want to know him. Who wouldn't want to know him? I really want to know him. And, not, and, and, and let me describe what that knowledge of him looks like. He's like, that knowledge of him looks like is to experience the power of his resurrection. I mean, the living Christ wants to work in and through your life. He's like, and so, so Christ dealt with the, the penalty of sin. But now as you know Christ, you discover the power, of, uh, the, you know, you discover his presence in, the pow uh, in power over sin. Right? So, so like, like, like sin doesn't take control of your life anymore because you're, you're walking in the power of his resurrection. He says to, be, to, to know the fellowship of his sufferings. To become like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. And not that he's doubting. Am I going to rise? What he's saying is there is a spiritual plane of knowledge with Jesus Christ where, where suddenly the, the things of, of earth no longer grip you. You're living just sort of in, in this like heavenly ideal and, and you're, you're understanding that my life is no longer here. My life is with Jesus. And it's just like I want to get to that place where, where, where I just don't care about anything on the world, right? And, and understanding what, what he's saying. I want to get to a place where I don't complain anymore, where I don't argue, where I love people, where, where you know, and why? And so he's moving. This is my aim. The more I know Christ, the more I walk with Christ, the more natural this becomes. I want to share a story I found this week. And uh, it illustrates part of this 
peace that he describes here, knowing Christ. Joseph is a tall, slender man, like most Maasai. He is a warrior. His face bears the ritual scars every young man receives after killing his first lion with only a spear and a shield. But the scars on his face and his ordeal with the lion are not what make Joseph special. He had made a long journey from Africa to Amsterdam for the itinerant evangelist conference, hoping for the chance to meet Billy Graham, hoping to share with him his incredible story. I learned about Joseph because my friend Robert was responsible for screening Graham's visitors. In a few days of the conference, it would have been impossible for all those who wanted to meet with Dr. Graham to do so, but after the young African shared his story with Robert, the meeting was quickly arranged. The story began when Joseph, who was walking along one of those hot, dusty African roads met someone who shared the good news of Jesus Christ with him. Then and there he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. The power of the Spirit began transforming his life. He was filled with such excitement and joy that the first thing he wanted to do was return to his own village and share the good news with the members of his local tribe. Joseph began going door to door telling everyone he met about the cross of Jesus and the salvation it offered. Expecting to see their faces light up the way his had, to his amazement, the villagers not only didn't care, they became hostile. The men of the village seized him, holding him to the ground while the women began to beat him with strands of barbed wire. He was dragged from the village and left to die in the bush. Joseph somehow managed to crawl to a water hole, and there, after two days of passing in and out of consciousness, found he had the strength to get up. He still wondered about the hostile reception he'd received from the people he had known all his life. He decided he must have left something out or told the story of Jesus wrong. After rehearsing the message he had first heard, he decided to go back to the village and share his faith once more. Joseph limped back into the circle of huts and began again to proclaim the good news about Jesus. He died for you so you might find forgiveness and come to know the living God. He pleaded. Once again, he was grabbed by all the men of the village and held while the women beat him a second time opening up wounds that had only just begun to heal. Once more, they dragged him unconscious from the village and left him to die. To have survived the first beating was truly remarkable. To live through the second was a miracle. Again, days later, Joseph awoke in the wilderness, bruised and scarred, and yet determined to go back. For the third time, he returned to the small village. This time, he found everyone waiting for him. They attacked him before he even had a chance to open his mouth. As they began to flog him for the third time and probably last time, he began to speak to them of Jesus Christ the Lord, who had the power to forgive sin and give them new life. The last thing he remembered before he passed out was seeing the women who were beating him begin to weep. This time he awoke in his own bed, not in the wilderness. The very ones who had so severely beaten him we're now trying to save his life and nurse him back to health. The entire village had come to Christ. Joseph, after telling his story, lifted his colorful, flowing African shirt to show my friend and Dr. Graham the scars upon scars that covered his chest and back. After thanking them both for listening, he turned and walked away. Robert told me that all Dr. Graham could say was, I'm not fit to untie his shoes and he wanted to meet me. Joseph is not known by the ritual scars he bears on his face, nor by his achievement as a Messiah warrior. He is recognized by the scars he incurred from faithfully following Jesus to the point of death. 
fellowship of his sufferings, he says. Becoming like him in his death. I don't know that any of us could relate to that story. But as you follow Jesus, there will be points where it is hard and not easy. But when you know him, it gives you the courage and the ability to do so. When you stick your head up at school and, and declare yourself to be belong to Christ, your peers aren't going to appreciate you. Even the other Christian kids might call you out because it, it's making them feel bad. When you're that person at work that has morals and standards that others don't have, yeah, people are not, aren't going to invite you to the parties and to their places, and you're going to miss out on stories and things because you're just not part of that. Family members may call you names and, you know, make fun of your faith, and that, and that happens. But he's like, you know, just to know Jesus in this deep and intimate and real way, this is my aim. So rejoice in the Lord, he says. The good news of Jesus changes us. And, and, and it changes our whole value system. And whatever we had, whatever we were working for, suddenly gets discarded so that we can know Jesus. That doesn't mean you don't keep your job and you don't do good, you know, help out and, you, you know, you don't take education or you don't, you know, become a manager or start your own business. I mean, do what you can do to glorify God in your, in your business and with what, you, what he's given you. But you understand that underneath all of that is this relational desire to know Jesus in a more meaningful and deeper way. And maybe someday you'll get the privilege of being in the class of a guy like Joseph taking your knowledge of Jesus even that far? Are you willing to be made fun of because you follow Jesus? Are you willing to suffer reproach because you have a different standard? Are you willing to walk away from the dirty jokes and the bad conversation? Are you willing to correct the language that's going on in your space, in your office, and say, no, we don't talk like that here? Are you willing to just let your relationship with Jesus flow through into every part of your life? He invites you to aim at the right thing here. Not building up your own credentials, but discovering a living, ongoing, dynamic relationship with God. The penalties for sin has been dealt with, and now you're experiencing power over sin. You're doing things you never thought you would do, and, and you're, 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 you're having better habits than you didn't have before. And why? Because you're walking with Jesus. He invites you to that. Would you follow him? Would you... Would you take those steps with him? That's, that's not salvation. You're in already. It's now you growing in this reality. It's what we call sanctification. It's you discovering more and more in Jesus and growing in your faith. You have an established, secure position, but now you're, you're saying, I want this relationship to go further. And Jesus invites you today, hey, come to know me. Come and grow in me. Come and discover this. And so, team, would you come up? They're going to sing that last song we sang, the, the, the gospel song, because that is where we stand. This is who we are. This is our target. This is our aim. We want to be the people of God in dynamic relationship with Christ. That's appealing. We're not peddling religion. We're inviting people into the living encounter with the living God. It's real. It's personal. It's face-to-face, -face, flesh to flesh. God wants to know you and you to know him. Would you take those steps to get to know the God who saved you this week? So would you pray with me? The team's going to close after we pray. 
If you don't know Christ as your Savior, I invite you today to believe in Jesus and receive the promise for eternal life. The Gospel of John is very clear about that. But if you believe in Jesus Christ, you can have eternal life. He died on the cross for you. He rose again. And so that you can know him in, in a dynamic relationship. And so, Lord, I pray for our church family here. And for me, Lord, help us to know you in a meaningful way. We don't want to play church, do religious games, or religious hopscotch. We want this to be real and ongoing. So do a work in our life so that we could just live out our identity in you. Thank you for this text, and may it have impact on our life this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with the team, would you?